0: you're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at crossvillerevolution.com. Well, good morning. Uh, My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And as always, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be standing up here in front of y'all this morning. Super grateful to uh, to Pastor Josh for sharing this platform with me. Uh, But y'all, I do just want to let you know right up front that just because I'm, I'm standing up here, it doesn't mean that I'm special. It doesn't mean that I'm, that I'm qualified in any way to do this or that I can say anything that will change your life. Like you're looking at a broken, messed up sinner up here. So just to ease your minds a little bit, I want to let you know right up front that I have been praying like crazy that the Holy Spirit of God that's living in me is the one who does the speaking today and not me because he is special and he is qualified and he does have literal life change for you this morning. And so with that being said... Uh, We are in a series uh, where we are reading through and learning from a book of the Bible called Acts. The book of Acts, it just tells us, y'all, it tells us just the flat-out insane story of how the church of Jesus Christ started and how it grew into what we now know it as today. And today, we're going to talk about an argument that happened in the book of Acts. We're going to read about some drama that happened in the early church today. Anyone here like some drama? Show of hands. You like some drama? Y'all are liars, man. Y'all are liars. Come on, I know some of y'all got those redneck next-door names. Neighbors that like to fight, you know, in the middle of the night in their front yards, you know. And every time you hear them yelling, you're like, "Man, I, I know it's midnight, but I think I need to go water my flowers right now." You know, I know y'all like some drama, and if that's you, if you're a if you're a drama lover, you're gonna really like the passage from Acts that we're in today. We're gonna see some drama uh, today. We're gonna be standing in our front yards watering our flowers, listening to some people yell at each other today. We're gonna talk about a massive argument that happened in the early church. But before we get into that got another question for you. Uh, By show of hands, anyone here married? Raise your hands for me if you're married, okay? Okay, you can put them down. Uh, Now, married people, uh, if you have ever been in an argument with your spouse, raise your hand for me real quick. Okay, thank you. Put them down. Every hand should be up that's married, right? Of course you have. Arguing in marriage is normal. In fact, if you're not arguing in your marriage a little bit, something is probably wrong, right? Because y'all think about it. In marriage, you've got two different people who come from two completely different families. Uh, Unless you're from Alabama, then you may come from... From the same family but typically typically you've got two different people from two different families listen if you're from alabama as much as we want to we can't talk trash about your football program so uh, cousin jokes are all we got all right let us have those but anyway Typically in a marriage, you've got two different people uh, from two different families, uh, two different upbringings, two different backgrounds, two completely different people, and you put them in a house together, right? You put them in a room together. You, you put them in a bed together. They share a bathroom. Of course, there's going to be conflict. Of course, there's going to be arguments, right? Of course. When you were dating, it was nice, and, and it was lovey-dovey, and it was, you, know, you hang up. No, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. No, no, you hang up, and nothing was annoying, and now it's, you know, why the heck are you breathing so loud, Darth Vader, you know? Why you chewing so loud? How can you crutch on a grape? You know, that doesn't make any sense. These are actual sentences that have been said in my home, by the way. All of a sudden, things are annoying now, right? Why? Because you're living life together. Or here's something that I know that every married couple in this room can relate to. The biggest fighting words in a marriage are these words. What do you want to eat. Yes. Those words will start a fight quicker than anything, right? What do you want to eat? Listen, marriage is one of God's greatest gifts to his children. And I wouldn't trade my marriage for anything. But marriage is living life together with someone who is different than you. So of course there's going to be conflict and drama. And here's the thing. You have to handle uh, that conflict when it comes up in your marriage. As tempting as it is to sweep stuff under the rug, you have to handle stuff. Why? Because there's no breaking up in in marriage. Marriage is different than dating in that way. There's breaking up in marriage. You are one flesh. You leave your father and mother, cleave to one another. And the bottom line is you love each other. I mean, that's why you married each other to begin with. So you work for a solution. You fight for a solution. Why? Because you have to. Being the church of Jesus Christ it is like marriage in that way, I think. Because being the church it is kind of like living life with people who are very different than you. Like in our church, we've got a lot of older people, we've got a lot of younger people. We've got a lot of Southerners, got a lot of Yankees, got a lot of Fairfielders, got a lot of Crossvillians, right? we got we got black people, we got white people, we got Republicans, we got Democrats, we got people who are more liberal in the way they think, and people who are more conservative in the way they think, and we're all trying to live life together as the church. So of course there's going to be Arguments and, and disagreements and, and and conflict that come up. This has been true since the early days in Acts. But today, in 2022, in America, in the Bible Belt, uh, when there's an argument in the church, Christians treat their relationships with each other like a dating relationship instead of a marriage. They just break off. They just they just part ways. They just split. If there's an argument or a disagreement, people just leave their church and they go to one of the other, you know, hundred-something churches in their town. But back in the day, in the early church days, they couldn't do that. Christian fellowship was like a marriage. Breaking up wasn't an option, y'all, because there's pretty much just, just one church in town for the most part. So when they had arguments, they had to make it work. There wasn't Cumberland Fellowship, you know, around the corner they could go to when they don't agree with the way that Rev Kids does something, right? There wasn't Central Baptist down the street they could go to when they don't like something that Pastor Josh or me or whoever from up here says. that There wasn't grace community that people could go to when they don't like the style of worship we have here or the way we do youth ministry. There was one church in town, y'all. So just like in a marriage, unity was a must. It was not an option. Unity was a must. We're going to read about an argument that happened in the early church, a big argument, and they had to deal with it because unity was a must. And I think a big lesson for us today is not that you can never leave Revolution Church or, or go to another church or whatever. That's fine if you want to do that. We have Different churches with different visions for different people with, with different visions. So that's great if you want to go to another church that aligns more with your vision and plug in over there. But I do think that maybe the lesson here is we should start looking at our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. More like a marriage and less like a dating relationship, where unity is a must, and breaking up just is not an option. Breaking up might happen. You know, Pastor Josh, next week's going to talk about a breakup. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, they broke up. They had to split ways, had a disagreement and, sp- and split ways. But breaking up should only happen when, when we've literally done all that we can do possible in our end to pursue unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus said once that our love for one another, our love for one another in the church will prove to the world that we are his disciples that's what will prove to the world that we are his disciples. So we need to learn about how to handle conflict with each other, and this story is going to help us with that today. So let's get into what happened. Let's get into this drama. Acts 15, verse 1. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, and by the way, if you haven't been here for this series and you don't know, Paul and Barnabas are two of the main up-and-coming leaders in the early church at this time. They're going out into the world. They're sharing the gospel. They're trying to plant churches in all these different areas. And if you remember, Paul and his boy Barnabas, we've been talking about the past couple weeks, have been on a missionary journey sharing the gospel with people who've never heard it. Uh, they just got back from this trip and listen to what they're greeted with when they get back. Some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. is Big statement right here. This is big. We can't miss how big this is. Paul and Barnabas have just spent probably about a year or so on a missionary trip telling person after person that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that it is only by faith in Jesus alone that you are saved from the punishment you deserve for your sin against God. But when they get back, they hear about these guys in the church who are preaching something way different. These guys were saying, You must be circumcised in order to be saved. They were adding to the gospel. And Paul and Barnabas heard this and they were ticked off. To put it nicely, listen to to the first part of verse 2, 15, uh, 2a. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. And yes, I pronounced that word right. Trust me, I looked it up on dictionary.com, okay? And I also learned from dictionary.com that that means that this was, they were arguing with a forceful passion in an intense manner with great feeling. In other words, this means that it was a huge screaming match argument between these guys that were teaching circumcision and Paul and Barnabas. This is the kind of screaming match that your redneck neighbors have out in their front yard, okay? So what's going on here? Remember, y'all, just like in a marriage, the church is made up of different people, right, With different from different backgrounds, and they're living life together, and this, of course, causes conflict. So in order for us to really understand this passage, and in order for us to better understand what these guys are screaming about— I got to tell you about the two main groups of people that made up the early church. So first of all, back in those days, you got the Jews in the church. Uh, that's who the church started with. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. Uh, Paul was a Jew. The church was full of Jews. And these Jews who later became Christians were taught their whole life to follow something called the law of Moses, which you can still find today in books that we have like the Viticus or Deuteronomy. These Jewish Christians were also taught their whole life to follow extra rules that the religious Jewish religious leaders just came up with. Following God was all about following rules to them. In fact, the more rules you followed, the more God loves you. And, and if you're in here today and you grew up in church, you can probably relate to that, right? A lot of you can understand the upbringing that these Jewish Christians had because a lot of us who grew up in the church grew up with our own church laws, didn't we? A lot of us were taught that salvation and following these church laws go hand in hand because these church laws may have been preached to us as much as or maybe even more so than the gospel was laws like no no tattoos no piercings no pants for women maybe no r rated movies unless it's the passion of the christ that's okay right no cussing no no alcohol no drinking alcohol no smoking cigarettes. Now, when you get into the south and the Bible belt of these church laws, you start getting into stuff like, well, you can dip. Dipping's okay, but cigarettes, you can't smoke cigarettes. You know, gluttony is okay. McDoubles are somehow okay. Fried chicken's okay. But cigarettes are somehow sinful, right? A lot of us can probably relate to being taught that following God and following rules go hand in hand like that, right? These, that's what these J- Jewish Christians were taught their whole life, right? keeping the law of Moses, following the rules. But here's the thing, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17. He said, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophet. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus lived a perfect life, never broke a single law from the God's word, which is pretty incredible. Go read Leviticus and tell me how incredible that is. And when he died, his life was a perfect sacrifice for the laws that we broke. The laws that we broke. So Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. He made us right with the perfect God by by laying down his perfect life as a perfect sacrifice for us. But a lot of the Jewish Christians in the church, they just couldn't accept that because they couldn't get this idea of rules, rules, rules out of their head. The same way that so many pastors and so many church leaders and so many Christians today just can't get the idea of rules, rules, rules out of their head, you know. So that's one group that makes up the early church that we're talking about this morning. Here's the second main group that made up the early church the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were non Jews. These were people who didn't grow up with the law of Moses. They didn't grow up with Leviticus and Deuteronomy. They weren't circumcised like you had to be if you were a Jew. They didn't know the Old Testament. They just heard the gospel of Jesus and they put their faith in Jesus. That's it. Those are the two main groups that made up the early church. Those were the two groups that had to live life together, y'all. So as you can imagine, There was bound to be some drama, bound to be some conflict and tension. And here's where the drama comes in. Some of the Jewish Christians were like, hey, it's great that these Gentiles want to be followers of our Jewish Jesus, but they need to become Jews before they can become Christians. They need to follow the laws of Moses. They need to keep our rules in order for their salvation to really count. They need to be circumcised like a good Jew is circumcised. In fact, they got to be circumcised to be saved they got to be circumcised to go to heaven. That's what these Jewish Christians were teaching. Now, let me stop here for a minute. Uh, If you don't know what circumcision is, uh, I was Googling. I found a video that will show you the circumcision process. Can we get the lights, guys, real quick? I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. We all know what circumcision is, right? And today, if you're a boy, it's a quick procedure. Right, that you do when you're a baby just because your, your parents wanted it for some reason. But circumcision under the old covenant, before Jesus came, was a sign that a man was a Jew, a child of God. It was required by the law. God required it for his people. So, so you can see where these Jewish Christians are coming from. But remember, Jesus came and fulfilled the law. That's what they were missing. So these Jewish Christians were adding to the gospel. These Jewish Christians were saying, Jesus died for your sins, yeah, but you also have to be circumcised to be really saved. This may sound crazy. Like, man, I can't believe that these Jewish Christians, they just, they just don't get it, do they? But again, I think we as modern-day Christians need to look in the mirror because I think we do the same thing all these years later. I'm willing to bet that a lot of us in this room grew up hearing a a fake gospel. It's a gospel that I'll call the Jesus plus gospel. And here's the difference between the real gospel and the fake Jesus plus gospel, okay? The fake gospel begins with Jesus. The real gospel stops with Jesus. The fake gospel begins with Jesus. The real gospel stops with Jesus. Let me explain. The fake gospel, the Jesus plus gospel, begins with Jesus. Yeah, Jesus died for your sins, but it keeps going past Jesus. It keeps adding to Jesus. The fake Jesus plus gospel says, uh, Jesus plus gospel says, Jesus died for your sins, but you got to go to church every Sunday in order for it to really count. It's Jesus plus church attendance. Now you should go to church, but going to church has nothing to do with your salvation. The fake Jesus plus gospel says, Jesus died for your sins, but you got to participate regularly in the Lord's Supper in order to truly be in Christian fellowship. That's Jesus plus communion. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you also got to serve in every area of your church. You got to work like a dog for the church. It's Jesus plus works. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you got to believe whatever the denomination you you are in believes. It's Jesus plus denominationalism. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you gotta worship a certain way. You gotta dress a certain way. Can't have tattoos, can't have piercing, gotta wear a suit and tie, or whatever. It's Jesus plus looking a certain way. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you gotta be baptized too in order to truly be saved and go to heaven. It's Jesus plus baptism. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you gotta speak in tongues in order to really go to heaven, in order to truly be saved. That's Jesus plus the gift of speaking in tongues. The fake Jesus plus gospel says Jesus died for your sins, but you got to be circumcised in order to truly be saved and go to heaven. The fake Jesus plus gospel says you got to do it, but the real gospel says Jesus already did it. He paid it all, 'all. y'all. You find the Jesus plus gospel in every denomination, in every part of the church, all throughout church history, because we just can't seem to grasp the fact that Jesus didn't pay it all, right? That Jesus paid it all. We can't seem to grasp the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is is not complicated. It is very, very simple. You are saved, you are saved through faith, by grace alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation, listen to this. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can brag about it. None of us can boast about it. That's the simple, true gospel in a nutshell. God will save you by his grace when you believe in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and nothing. Nothing. But nothing. That's the gospel. And you can rest in the simplicity of the true gospel. There is therefore no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So many people today say, I grew up in church, but I've walked away from Jesus. And I'm deconstructing my faith in Jesus. Most of those people are not really walking away from Jesus. I found that most of those people who say that are really walking away from Jesus, plus. They're walking away from a counterfeit version of Jesus. Like, I don't know if y'all have ever seen the the Santa Claus movies with Tim Allen, but in Santa Claus 2, they have to make that toy Santa, that counterfeit Santa, that fake Santa. I think that's the version of Jesus that most people are walking away from. Not the real Jesus, a toy Jesus, a fake Jesus, a counterfeit Jesus, a counterfeit gospel, a toy gospel. They're walking away from trying to do the right things and and follow the right right rules, and they're walking away from trying to be good, and of course they walk away from that. The Bible says no one is good, no, not one. It's an impossible standard to hold yourself up to, just like the law of Moses was an impossible standard for the people in Acts to hold themselves up to. The real gospel is very simple. Your salvation is complete when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Remember Jesus' last words. Well when he before he died on the cross, he said, It is finished. It's finished. And I think those of us who have been hurt by the church in the in the past, because we've been held to this impossible standard by the church, we can rest in the words of Jesus. It is finished. That's why the real gospel ends with Jesus. The fake gospel starts with Jesus and adds to him, but the real gospel starts the same place it ends. Jesus Christ. And, and maybe some of you are thinking, but wait, Brandon, don't we gotta tell these. New Christians not to have sex before they're married. You know, don't we gotta talk to these new Christians about getting drunk and we gotta tell them not to post half-naked pictures of themselves on Instagram and we gotta teach them how to, you know, guard their eyes and how to fight against lust and all that stuff. We gotta tell them this and teach them that. Uh, we We gotta teach them what a holy lifestyle looks like. Listen, we will. Okay, we will, but that comes later. That's what we call discipleship. That's what comes as a result of someone putting their faith in Jesus and God working in them. That's trying to live a life of, of actually following Jesus and understanding how God desires for his children to live. That comes next and we'll walk people through that, but that has nothing to do with their salvation. And by the way, real quick, If you're a Christian and you've got another Christian telling you in your life, hey, you probably shouldn't post that or you probably shouldn't date that person or go to this place, that's not legalism, that's love, that's discipleship. Don't reject that. You're lucky to have it. But it's important that we understand that that holy lifestyle is good, but it's not what saves people. The only thing that saves us is Jesus, not Jesus plus a holy lifestyle. A holy lifestyle is what happens as a result of our salvation. It's not a requirement for our salvation. The only requirement for salvation is faith in Jesus. When Jesus hears people saying, when he hears us saying uh, stuff like salvation is Jesus plus this and Jesus plus that, can you imagine how much that probably bums him out, you know, and how much that probably breaks his heart? Jesus is probably like, man, I lived a perfect life, never broke a single law. I, was, I lived a perfect life in every way, never sinned. And then I suffered on that cross for you. My body was beaten and whipped to the point where I couldn't even be recognized as a human being. So scripture tells us about Jesus on the cross. He says, I literally died for you, and I raised my body up from the dead three days later, defeating death and the grave for you. And you're saying that's not enough to save you? I have ascended to the right hand of the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that I am the Lord. And you're saying, I'm not enough to save you. I told y'all, it is finished. Just put your faith in me. Also, it's important to understand that the point of the law of Moses was never to save people, y'all. It was to show people that we can't save ourselves. It was to show us that we desperately, desperately need a perfect Savior. The law of Moses that these Jewish Christians were so hung up on, it was meant to point people to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The law was designed to be failed because the more people fail it, the more they see their need for Jesus. So why do we read books like Leviticus and and Deuteronomy? Why should you add those books to your Bible reading plan? Here's why. So that you can see your need for Jesus. And so that you can appreciate Jesus' perfection. And so that you can see how broken and messed up you are. So that you can humble yourself. And so that you can understand that you can never be perfect. And so that you can see your need for a perfect Savior named Jesus. But these Jews in the church at this time, they just couldn't grasp this. They were still holding on to the law. Uh, they were still teaching these new Gentile Christians they had to follow the law of Moses to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas were ticked off. They put it nicely. They were fuming. There was a full-on argument, knockdown, dragout, red faces, spit flying on both ends here. But they couldn't break up because, remember, unity was a must. So, like, okay, what do, we got, what do we got to do to solve this? Remember, I said, this story is really going to help us deal with conflict with each other. That's what we're going to get most from the story, I think. This story is going to give us some really good advice on how to handle conflict, especially conflict in the church that we may face in the church with with people in the church. And by the way, if you're thinking, man, this really doesn't apply to me. I don't really have conflict with people in the church. Well, just like if you're not arguing a little bit in your marriage, something's probably wrong with your marriage. Uh, If you're not arguing a little bit in the church, if you're not having conflict with people in the church every now and then, something's probably wrong with your relationship with the church. You're probably not plugged into community. You're probably not serving. You're probably not being the body of Christ. You're probably playing it safe. Jesus doesn't call us to the safe thing or the comfortable thing. He's calling us to get real, to get open, to get plugged in with people in his church, to serve people in his church. That's why we've got ministries for every single age group. We've got ministries for every single age group for that exact reason. We've got places for anyone to serve for that exact reason. And this stuff has nothing to do with your salvation, but this is the kind of stuff that God expects his children to do because he knows that you need the church and the church needs you. But for the rest of us, For the rest of us, if you got an issue with someone in your church, in your small group, in your ministry, like if you're a woman and you've got conflict with another woman in in Rev. Ladies, right? If you're a man and you've got conflict with a dude in Rev. Men, if you're a student or a young adult and you've got conflict with somebody at your table or or in your small group, if you're serving in an area of the church and you've got conflict with somebody that you're serving with, here is what this story tells us to do. First of all, we've got to take our conflict higher up. Take your conflict. Higher up. This is true for any relationship you have in your life, really, but it's especially true for the relationships that you have. In the church, you do not, this is big, you do not take your conflict that you have with with someone you're serving with, for example, to someone else that you're serving with, right? That doesn't that who can't even fix the problem. That doesn't make any sense. That's that's called gossip, y'all. That's childish, that's dumb, that's sinful. You don't involve anyone else. You gotta be a big girl, you gotta be a big boy, and you gotta go to the person that you have a problem with. And if you can't settle it yourself, you gotta take your conflict higher up. This is what they did. Acts 15, 2b through 5. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and insisted, Here we go, the Gentile converts must be circumcised as required uh, to follow the law. And required to follow the law of Moses. So Paul and Barnabas and these Jewish Christians, they were arguing with, they took their conflict higher up. They took their argument to the apostles, to the main leaders of the church. Now, there's two ways that I think we can interpret this. There's two ways that I think we can apply this. There's two ways that we can take our conflicts that we have with people in the church higher up. Here's the first way. We can take our conflict to the word of God, right? Obviously, take your conflict to the word of God. See, we have access to the apostles too, Right? We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to to get the apostles' advice on something. It's sitting on our bookshelves and our nightstands. It's on an app on our phone, right? We call it the Bible. You know, one thing that qualifies the book of the New Testament to be in the Bible is association with or approval by or authorship by an apostle. So you can and should take your conflicts to the actual apostles too. You can and should take your conflicts to Scripture and see what the Bible has to say about what you're arguing about, what your conflict is. I bet it has something to say. And maybe you're thinking, well, Brandon, I don't really know my Bible really well. How how do I find out if I'm wrong in a conflict with the Bible? Very simple. Uh, God has blessed us with something called... Google, y'all. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's awesome. If you got conflict with with someone uh, and you don't know what the Bible has to say about it, you can just Google, you know, verses on blank. So let's say you're, you're you got conflict with somebody in your small group about abortion, or and you type in, well, Google what what does the Bible say about a, abortion? Verses on abortion. You got conflict with somebody about you know homosexuality or whatever. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? You just type it in. Don't feel bad. I'm a pastor. I do that all the time. I use Google as my best friend. And by the way. When you go to Scripture, when you take your conflict up to the Word of God, you got to be ready and willing to let Scripture prove you wrong. you got to be willing to humble yourself to the authority of God's Word. you got to be willing to ask the Word of God, hey, am I in the wrong here? And you got to be willing to accept a no, right? The longer you follow Jesus, the harder this is going to be for you, and you can't lose that humility, though. So are you really open to letting scripture change your stance on something, right? That's the question. People let their opinions shape scripture all the time, but very rarely do people let the scripture shape their opinions. So we got to take your conflicts to the Bible, but be ready and willing to be wrong. Be ready and willing to submit to what the word of God says, whether you like it or not. The other way I think we can apply this idea of taking our conflicts up is this. We can take our conflicts to our leaders. Take your conflict to your leaders. You got conflict with somebody in your small group, whatever, take it to your leaders. Paul and Barnabas and the Jewish Christians took their conflict to the apostles of the church, the main leaders, their leaders. So if you've got conflict in the church with someone and y'all can't settle on your own and you've already gone to scripture, you're still not really sure about it, take your conflict to one of your pastors, one of your elders. That's one reason why God has placed them in your life. Take your conflict to your small group leader or your ministry leader. You know, we vet everybody pretty dang good here at Revolution Church, you know, and if someone's a leader, it's because we believe that they are sound in what they believe, and they submit to the word of God. We trust them, and you can trust them too. Trust me. So if you've got a problem with someone in the church, take your conflict in the church higher up. That's the right way to settle stuff. That's what these guys are doing in our story for Max this morning. Then verse 6 says, So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. So this argument has turned into something huge. It's turned into something huge enough to get all the big dogs of the church at that time involved. And it should have. It was important. You know, there are things that are not worth arguing about. In fact, I think that's the next thing that we can learn from this story. I think we have it up on the screen. I just wanted to put it there just just to make this clear. we got to understand that there are things that are not worth arguing about, y'all. There are things. Listen, it's not worth arguing about how the world's going to end, okay? Even me and and Pastor Josh disagree some on eschatology and end times and that sort of thing. Yet we still work together, still love each other, still worship together, still serve together. We still have unity. It's not worth arguing about stuff like female pastors or whatever, and whether that's biblical or right. You know, there are people on on this church staff that I would disagree with strongly about that. And we still work together. We still love each other. We still have unity. We don't argue about that stuff. There are certain things that are just not worth arguing about. And there are certain things that we just need to chill out about and get over, you know? Satan loves to make little things big things. He loves to make secondary issues, divisive issues, and we can't let him do that to us. But this issue they were arguing about in our story today, it was something that was definitely worth making a big deal about because this is the issue of adding to the gospel. People's salvation is on the line here. Here's another tip from this story I think we can learn. we got to understand that there are things that are worth arguing about. I know that's a weird sentence, but it's the only way I know how to put it. I got to understand that there are things that are worth arguing about. When it comes to salvation, it's worth arguing. It's worth splitting over. See, I couldn't work with someone or have unity with someone who disagrees with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. For example, that's why Jehovah Witnesses and, and Mormons are not considered Christians and, and we don't have unity with them and we don't work with them because we disagree on the gospel. And that's, and that's something worth splitting over. That's something worth parting ways over. So this issue has become a big deal because it's worth arguing about. So now everyone is involved in this meeting. Pretty much all the main characters of Axe are here. You know, sometimes I think about Axe as like a Marvel movie. You know what I mean? I don't know if y'all watch Marvel movies. I'm sure some of you do. But most of the time with Marvel movies, you have standalone, you know, like Iron Man, standalone Iron Man movie, standalone Spider-Man movie or whatever. Most of the time in Axe, we have standalone Paul stories or standalone Peter stories. But this story we're reading this morning, is like a Marvel Avengers movie, you know, where all the heroes gather together. You see everybody. You see Peter. Peter, the Peter, you've got Paul, the Paul, you've got Barnabas, you've even got James, the half-brother of Jesus here in this meeting, and who knows what other apostles were there. And everyone's going to state their opinion. In fact, there's three speeches that I think is important we read through this morning, one from Peter, one from Paul and Barnabas, and then one from James. Here's the first speech. Here's Peter's speech. Here's Peter's stance on this issue. Here's what he thinks. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles How? by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. I love that last part. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So Peter is like, listen, y'all, has anyone in here perfectly kept the law other than Jesus? And it's just crickets in the room. Anyone? No. No one. Okay, so why are you expecting these Gentiles to keep the law of them? Peter says we are saved when we put our faith in Jesus. That's how God saves us, and that's how God saves the Gentiles, Peter's saying. God gives us his Holy Spirit when we put our faith in Jesus, not when we're circumcised, not when we live a holy lifestyle. We are saved by grace, not by circumcision, not by the law of Moses, not by our good works, not by our lack of tattoos, not by our sobriety, not even by our purity, but by grace, God's grace. And then Paul and Barnabas give another speech. Acts fifteen, twelve. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And we really don't get to see the whole you know, the whole speech here, but here's the gist of what Paul and Barnabas say. They're like, y'all listen, God is saving these uncircumcised Gentiles. I'm telling you, we were just on a missionary journey and we saw tons of uncircumcised Gentiles get saved. In fact, we saw miracles and, and we saw signs and wonders happen among the uncircumcised Gentiles. So clearly God is okay with them not being circumcised. Clearly God is saving them despite not following the law of Moses. And then, lastly. We get James's speech. And, and this is again, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. The guy that Jesus shared a bunk bed with. Okay. This is a big deal. James steps up, and everyone in the room is like, It's James, it's brother Jesus. And listen to what he says. When they, when they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. So James goes to the Bible. He quotes from the book of Amos. James is like, remember what God said in the book of Amos, y'all? Afterward, I'll return and restore the fallen house of David. I'll rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity, the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. And then James says what I think is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible is verse 19. He says, so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I love that because that's what we're still doing today, isn't it? We, we still need this message today because we're still making it difficult for people to turn to God, and we better stop. Because we're saying Jesus is not enough. We're saying God's grace is not enough. And we're adding all these extra qualifications to salvation. And then James says, verse 20, instead we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. That may be a little confusing. I'll explain that in just a second. But right now, I want to change the scene. I want to go back to Antioch where these Gentiles are still back home. They're waiting patiently to hear back about this issue. All the Gentiles are nervous, especially the dudes. Like, we're going like, to we have to get some surgery here or what? You know, I'm biting my fingernails. And then the apostles send the Gentiles this letter, and we're going to skip to verse 28 to read it. This is the gist of the letter. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit that, and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming uh, blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well, very well. This is where we're gonna stop in Acts today, but this letter is basically saying, dear Gentiles, great news. You don't have to be circumcised. woo you know, party breaks out. You don't have to be a Jew to be saved. You don't have to follow the law of Moses to be saved. Jesus fulfilled the law, it is finished. There's nothing you got to do to be saved. Great. But then the letter says, but you must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood, or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual morality. This is the stuff that James mentioned in his speech a second ago. And you may be like me when I first read this, like, wait a second, I thought thought James didn't want to make it difficult for people turning to God. And, and and these are all things from the law of Moses that he's mentioning. But I thought Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. So w- what is going on here? Why is James telling the Gentiles they got to do these these things? I mean, I guess I get why he's saying avoid sexual morality. Like, I get that. Uh, it's kind of universal. You know, we want to stay away from that. that. That's obvious, of course. But what's with this other weird stuff in this letter that James is telling the Gentiles to do? They can't eat food offered to idols. They can't uh, eat animals that have been strangled. Like, what, what, what the heck? And here's what James is doing. First of all, remember what James said at the end. He, he didn't say, if you do these things, you'll be saved. Or he didn't say, if you do these things, you'll go to heaven. He said, if you do these things, you will do well. You'll do well. James took a few of the, here's what James did. He took a few of the most hot button issues from the law at that time and that, that, that day. Things that the Jews really cared about. Things that the Jews found extra offensive in that day and age for reasons that we just don't have time to unpack. And at that time in history, this is, these were the things that the Jews were really concerned about. And James is saying, hey, Gentiles, you have freedom. You have freedom to do those things and still be saved. You know, you're not going to go to hell if you, if you eat food offered to idols. But for the sake of unity, Gentiles, just please do these simple things that I'm asking you to do just to keep the peace. So if there's one last tip on how to handle conflict from this passage, I think it's this. Do all you can do to avoid conflict. Romans 12:18 backs this up. Do all that you can do, all that you can possibly do on your end to live in peace with everyone. James is saying to the Gentiles, you have the freedom to eat meat offered to idols. You have the freedom to eat meat from animals that have been strangled. You will not go to hell, I promise. But for the sake of unity, can you just please lay down these freedoms? Please, for the sake of unity, can you please at least do these little things to avoid conflict? So, Like y'all remember uh, last year when the number one Georgia Bulldogs just obliterated the Tennessee Vols 41 to 17. Y'all remember that? I remember that. I had the freedom to walk through those doors right there that next Sunday morning wearing my bright red Georgia Bulldogs jersey. I had the freedom to do that. But I laid down that freedom, y'all, because I love you. For the sake of unity and to keep the peace, I laid down that freedom. And also, I don't want to be a stumbling block for some of you, and uh, you know, cause you to commit the sin of uh, adult or uh, jealousy, you know, or or murder, you know. Maybe no, you kill me. That's the idea here. James James is asking the Gentiles, and he's still asking us today. You have you have freedoms in Christ, but please lay down your freedoms when necessary for the sake of unity in the church of Jesus. So, so let me give you another example. You will you will never, ever, ever see me personally drink alcohol in public, ever. You just, you just won't see it. Uh, now, I, I, I'm I one of those people who don't struggle with alcohol. There are some people who you can have a, a beer at dinner or a glass of wine at dinner, and they're fine. That's all. It, it doesn't affect them. That's me. There are other people who, you know, have, have one beer at dinner, and that turns into two, that turns into five, and before they know it, they wake up in Kentucky with a new tattoo, okay? There are some people who can't handle it. But for me, I know I can do that without sinning, but you'll never see me do that. You will never see me do that, I promise. You'll never even see me smoke a cigar in public, even though I have the freedom to do these things. Because even though I have the freedom to do these things without sinning, I'm not going to create disunity between a brother or, or sister of mine who might see me and think that those things are sinful. I, I'm just not. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to lay down that, that that freedom I have for the sake of unity. Or if I'm meeting with someone who I know thinks tattoos are sinful, I'm not going to go into that meeting with the mentality of, uh-uh, you know, tattoos aren't a they just don't know how to read their Bible in the, in the right context. I'm going to flaunt my tattoos and show them who's boss, and they're going to deal with it because it's my right and it's my freedom. No. I'm going I'm to cover up the best I can if I know I'm meeting with somebody who thinks it's a sin because I'm not going to create disunity between a brother or a sister of mine over something as stupid as a tattoo. I'm just not. I'm going to lay down that freedom like, let's go back to this idea of the church being like a marriage. Listen to what the Bible says about marriage. Ephesians 5.21, it says, And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think this applies to our relationships with each other, too, in the church. Submit to each other, y'all. we got to submit to each other. We might have to lay down some freedoms for each other if we're going to try to live life together as different as we all are. we got to do all that we possibly can on our end to pursue unity. So when you have conflict in the church, don't gossip. Don't gossip. Don't be childish and gossip. Take your conflict higher up, right? Take your conflict to the word of God, first of all, of course. If if that doesn't help, take your conflict to your leaders, and they'll use the word of God to help you. Understand that there are things that are not worth arguing about. Run it through the filter. Is this even worth causing, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, conflict between me and my brother? Is this even worth it? No, it's probably not. And understand that there are things that are worth arguing about. And if it is, take your conflict higher up. But do all you can to avoid conflict. Lay down your freedoms if you have to. Pursue unity like it was a must, like there's no other option. Why? Because, y'all, there is nothing like disunity among Christians that leads people away from Jesus. Nothing like disunity in the church. Nothing like people who, uh, who don't know Jesus looking at the church and seeing us bickering and fighting over stupid stuff. Nothing like that that sends people away from Jesus. I think that's the main thing. And there's nothing like unity and love among Christians that leads people to Jesus. That's our biggest witness. The world will know we are disciples of Jesus by our unity, right? and our love for one another. So let's pursue that unity, and let's listen to what this passage has taught us about how to handle conflict and pursue unity and our relationships with each other as we're trying to live life together as a group of a bunch of different people who love Jesus. Let me pray for y'all. Father, thank you for books like this who just teach us, that just teach us such practical stuff, such life-changing stuff, such obvious stuff, but sometimes we just need to hear it Father, I pray that you'd help me to let this sink in and how I handle conflict and and what I do when I have tension between me and someone else, and I pray the same is true for everyone else in this room. Father, I pray that we are a church that people can look at and say, man, they love each other. Man, they're united. Even though they're so different, they're united. They have unity. People will know, I pray, God, that people in Crossville, Tennessee, who don't know Jesus will know that we are your disciples by the way we love each other and the way we have unity with each other. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.